So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that you should offer. Do not conform yourselves to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. Then you will be able to know the will of God, what is good and pleasing to Him, and is perfect. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the fundamental beliefs of conservative friends, what we are conserving. Session number 24. I just want to begin with a few more things I didn't get to say last week when I was talking about some of the things that need to be taken into consideration when translating from one language to another and how languages can be very different, especially if you look at languages outside of Europe and India, the Indo-European languages. We are all very ethnocentric and linguocentric as well. We think people speak languages similar to our own, and some languages are quite different from our own language, and yet we may never know that. But that's kind of an important thing when it comes into translating religious works like the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English or other languages. There's so many things to take into consideration, and I just wanted to mention a few more things. Like if we were translating the Greek and Hebrew into Chinese, Chinese does not make any distinction between singular and plural. Everything is singular. There's no need to make a distinction unless there is a reason to, and then they have maybe ways of doing that. Many languages do not have verb tenses like we have in English and Greek. Maybe most languages do not have that present, past, and future, and various other tenses of the verb. They make different kinds of distinctions as to whether an action began or was completed or it was continuing. Some languages will use both tenses and not. So when you go from a language like Greek into a language that focuses on something else, uh, not on time, then you have to make a decision as to what was perhaps the thought in the original language. So these are things that come into question at times. Likewise, many languages make a distinction between animate and inanimate beings. In English, we have the kind of natural gender distinction in pronouns, but we don't have that in other nouns. Whereas in many languages, European languages, you have grammatical gender, which is not natural gender, although there is a relationship. Those kinds of things have to be taken into consideration. I was once told by a Quaker pastor that he was speaking to some Asians. I think it may have been Burmese or some language like that. They were talking about baptism, and when the word baptize and baptism was translated into their language, it could only refer to water which is a problem then, because the Greek word does not necessarily have to refer to something water, water baptism. So when you have a translation like that, then the people who speak that language, that was not necessarily the case in the original, and they will have to deal with that kind of problem in their own translation. As I was saying about inanimate and animate, if you recall, we talk about Christ, which means the anointed one, Christos, mostly in the New Testament, but then you also find it inanimate in the first epistle of John, where it talks about the anointing within. 
that is the inanimate form of the anointed one. But we're talking about the same thing. When you're talking about a spirit, a spirit is something beyond human. It doesn't have those kinds of distinctions in animate or inanimate. It's supernatural, beyond natural, above nature. I don't know if I mentioned this linguistic joke in this group. I think I may have said it in the Bible study group. What do you call a person who speaks three languages? Trilingual. What do you call a person who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call a person who speaks one language? An American. Americans do not often speak another language. Actually, the majority of human beings on the planet today speak at least two languages. They are in such close proximity with other people who speak a different language. It is quite normal to have two languages, at least two languages. I want to speak a little bit about Jesus as being a sacrifice. This is a difficult topic to talk about, but it's so often mentioned in the New Testament and in various ways in statements of Quaker faith. And I feel somewhat humble in talking about this because I don't feel I have a complete understanding of it, but I do want us to bring it up anyway. I had hoped to talk today about humility, lowliness of mind, meekness, gentleness, these types of behaviors, basically those of a true Christian. But I think it's important to look at the sacrifice of Jesus in terms of understanding that humility. There is a Greek word, hilasmos, which gets translated as sacrifice, also gets translated as propitiation, but both those words are difficult for us North Americans and Canadians and Mexicans to understand that because we don't have any sense of sacrifice as there was in the ancient world and still is in many other parts of the world. Uh, the only place we can think of as a sacrifice is when there is a war and soldiers sacrifice their lives to defend their country. That seems to be about the only true place you talk about sacrifice. People do mention these petty sacrifices that they make daily to do something or, or certain sacrifices that they may perform for their children and, and other things. But this kind of sacrifice is a different kind of thought. Basically, the word itself is from a Latin word, and it means to make holy, something that is made holy. What is made holy? What is holy? Holy is something other than worldly, other than mundane, other than material, physical. So you're trying to separate and look at this item or person or thing, animal, whatever, is being offered as a sacrifice to a higher being as an understanding that there is something beyond the material world. Paul in Romans 12, one of the most important verses in Paul, in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Living sacrifices. That is an understanding that may be very hard for us to understand as modern 21st century people, but that is a crucial understanding of sacrifice. We being living sacrifices, just as Jesus himself was a living sacrifice and then executed. Reading further on verse 2, 
do not be conformed to this world. Again, as a living sacrifice, you're separating yourself from the worldly, mundane, everyday kind of way of doing things. You're separating yourself. Do not be conformed to worldly kinds of thinking, materialistic kinds of thinking, consumerism, capitalism, you, you name it. We are to not be conformed to that pervasive, everyday kind of philosophy that we are exposed to in all parts of our lives. But, as Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And that is so crucial. That is the metanoia, the true repentance, the true transformation by renewing our minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, so that you may discern what is the true desire of God for how we are to live and act and think and do in this world. These are two very important verses. This is a sense I think we can understand sacrifice in when we look at this kind of sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Getting back to that Greek word hilasmos, which gets translated as sacrifice or propitiation, Basically, that word sacrifice means it's a means for removing sin, a means to be restored from one's sinfulness. If you say Jesus is a sacrifice, he is the means for understanding how we are to transform ourselves by being baptized into his death, being baptized into this death to our animal, worldly kinds of ways of doing things. As it says in the Sermon on the Mount, God knows what we need every day, clothes and food and whatnot. But we seem to have these desires and, and cravings that go way beyond what are so basic to us. So often in so many Christian denominations, you will hear the expression, and friends say it too and have said it, Christ died for our sins. Unfortunately, and this is a point that friends made very clear, what you see in other denominations is something called imputed righteousness. Because Jesus was so upright, so righteous, our sins are forgiven. What is true is that that is only part of it, that we ourselves must also participate in that death and become these living sacrifices, as Jesus himself was a sacrifice and a divine exemplar for us, a model of what we need to do to become much more like him, Christ-like, much more God-like, upright, righteous. In Philippians chapter 2, there is a very important verse there. Let the same mind be in you. Again, the Greek says, think, be thinking the thought that was in Christ Jesus. Be thinking that thought in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Further on in verse 7 and 8, and further, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is total obedience to God. And he, as a human being, followed God and being obedient completely. And therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name, the nature, the essence that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord that Jesus Christ is master to the glory of God the Father, a name that only, as I mentioned last week, was reserved for God the Father in the Old Testament. And in the general Roman Greek world, that was the title given to the emperor, who was the owner, the master of all the Roman Empire. The problem we have today is with so many Christian denominations, 
because Jesus did what he did, there is this understanding, as Quakers have seen it, of this imputed righteousness that these other Christians have, that because Jesus did this, we are saved from our sins. Friends have not understood that in the same way. What they have understood is that we must work to help, as Paul himself says, fill up what is still needed in the world in coming to that understanding of Christ. There is a verse in Ephesians chapter 4, it's 13. It's a very difficult verse to translate into English. And even we go before that, Paul is talking about the gifts that were given to us, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and so forth, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. I'm going to try to translate that more clearly so you understand what's being said there, that these people are given by God to us to help us so that we can become unified in our faith in Christ Jesus and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This word is a word that basically means consciousness, become conscious of the Son of God conscious or to recognize. The word is epignosis. Gnosis means knowledge or experience. Epignosis is consciousness, knowledge, recognition, that we recognize God. We recognize the Son of God, of course, in us, to maturity, to that full maturity of that understanding, to the measure of the full stature of Christ, to the measure of the amount of that full stature. That's, I'm sorry, that was the word I was referring to, of Christ. So we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. I think what he's referring there is to his false teachers that the New Testament warns us about, all these false Christian teachers. And you find that also in early Christian writings. Likewise, even today, there are so many varieties of Christian denominations and what Quakers have condemned as being false teachings. There were false Christian teachers in that first century, and they still continue today. So this imputed righteousness was something that friends actually refused to accept. You cannot just be saved, that you need to work on it with Christ within you, that it's very important to to walk that walk with the Lord. I'm just reminded of the First World War. The Germans had on their helmets and on their belts a saying, Gott mit uns, God is with us. It's a combination of religion and worldly thinking that goes on with that sort of thing. Even if you're reminded about what Constantine the emperor did when he allowed Christianity to become a lawful religion in the Roman Empire. Before that, he went into battle because he had this kind of vision in hoc signo and this sign, the sign of the cross, you will conquer. I question the spiritual understanding of that, where Jesus, who says, love your enemies, is telling someone to go and conquer someone. But that's the historical kind of thing we are told. In the Bible study series, I've been presenting this short paragraph from Origen, an early Christian, on reading the Gospels. He wrote this probably around 226 to 232, commentaries on the gospel according to John and later. I think we need to keep this in mind that early Christians really had a different sense of reading the gospels and reading the New Testament and Old Testament than we do. 
Origen was one of the most profound, most prolific Christian writers of those first centuries. He died a martyr, but in later times, as the church was changing its doctrines, many of his writings were condemned, but this specific thing here was never condemned. What he says here in this commentary in John, I do not condemn the evangelists, the gospel writers, if to serve their mystical view, they have in some way rearranged actual historical events in an order other than that in which they occurred, so as to tell of what happened in one place as if it had happened in another, or of what happened at a certain time as if it had happened at another time, and to introduce into what was said in a certain way some variations of their own. For they propose to speak the truth both pneumatically, that is, spiritually, and somatically, literally, in so far as possible. And where this was not possible, to prefer the pneumatic, the spiritual, to the somatic, literal. They often preserve the pneumatic spiritual truth in what some might call a somatic literal falsehood. I think a lot of dispute among Christians would never have taken place if this kind of understanding was still prevalent among Christians today. If you even look at some of the early Friends writings and their titles of some of their works where they speak against the literalist interpretations of such and such person or the literalist bishops of somewhere, they had a good understanding of what the issues were basically have said most of what I wanted to say here about the sacrifice of Jesus. We could talk a bit more about going into the understandings and what where this leads us in terms of being more humble, being truly humble. I've talked so often about the fear of the Lord, the fear of God is that holding God in that reverential awe, that gobsmacking awe of him as to being creator and source of everything, the universe. And we are small little creatures who live for a few decades in this vast universe. Uh, but we are loved by the Lord as his own. What I think I want to just kind of emphasize the need to really be these living sacrifices and to really renew our minds to change them and have a completely different perspective on everything we are seeing around us. We have a wonderful 20th century word brainwashed. And in a real sense, we are brainwashed from a very early age by all the stuff that our society throws our way day after day, whatever kind of society that may be, whatever nation or country. As I've mentioned in the past, Americans have such an extreme individualism that it's very hard for us to look into this kind of unity of faith that's being talked about here, these true saints that Paul calls people in his congregations, that they are truly holy ones. They have a different way of looking at the world. This was very true of conservative friends as to really praying and wanting hard to hold on to the original revelations and understandings of Christianity of the first century, as well as rediscovered back at the beginning of Quakers in the 1600s putting up a hedge, realizing that they may be a remnant of these true believers. But today we are we have this constant barrage of other Christian denominations with their beliefs. We hear it day in, day out from radio, TV, news, and it's hard for us, I think, to hold on to something 
when you are constantly under this onslaught from outside the worldly thoughts and worldly Christian religions. If it might be the other way around, that we might seek these external exposure to things in order to somehow sustain this self. Best way I can think of explaining that is if, if the self were sort of like a magnet, it would just draw everything to it in order to give it a sense of being, a sense of definition, a sense of control, a sense of possession. And what Paul is talking about as a sacrifice is a complete forfeiture of that so that it's no longer the self being the center and one's whole environment and life being drawn to one to define you and sustain you and uphold you. But instead, that would be sacrificed. And instead, the center would be God. That's the big change, is that that self is no longer trying to sustain itself by drawing a sense of accomplishment, a sense of identity, all these things to it, to sustain it and buffer it against all the onslaught of what our true situation is, which is that we aren't immortal and we aren't all-powerful. But we use these things. You can say that all the external events in society work against us. But I put the responsibility with the self and wanting all these things and seeking them out to sustain us. I think the self, the ego, we have an addiction to our own self. And we want to satisfy that addictive self, that addictive ego. It is like an abyss that can never be filled. It constantly wants, desires, it has lusts, all kinds of different kinds of lusts out there. And I totally agree with this. I think it's actually a two-way street. But yes, that is the self that must be denied, that must be renounced. That's the self that must be sacrificed. Yes, I agree with that. That is a true way of looking at it. But I think depending on the culture one is in, the state, the society, the country, it can have a greater or a lesser kind of influence on allowing that. Again, I think of Americans, extreme individualism really makes it perhaps even harder for us than for some other cultures. We're not the exception. It's true everywhere with all human beings in some degree or other. I think that there are cultures where the tribe is more important than the self. But I don't think that's an improvement no. over the self. No. I think when I think that the self is probably an evolutionary step forward from the tribe. If you look at the Old Testament, it's the tribe that is the unit, the entity. But when you move forward into the New Testament, it becomes the personal responsibility of the individual to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. So I think a tribe is a earlier form of humanity and that the self is a later one. There is this atavistic kind of return to this tribalism. Looking at films of thousands of Chinese youngsters holding up the red book and listening to Mao or all the Nazis and thousands of them at these stadiums just giving the Nazi salute. Zeke Heil, which means victory and salvation. Zeke Heil, victory, salvation. 
sounds very religious to me, but it's, it's like you got a tribe of egos there. A tribe of it's a tribe of egos. I think it's maybe feeling that the ego is too heavy to carry. To lose oneself backwards to an earlier form of existence in the tribe. I think that we as individuals are always threatened by the temptation to forfeit responsibility for ourselves and to foist it off upon some authority or some tribal center. I'm trying to remember something in one of the meditations of William Schuin, where he's talking about self, and he says the self must be of no repute, that you cannot give the self the honor for all the things that that particular individual does. The self must be of no repute, or the self must be of no reputation. You cannot give it the honor, the praise, Usually people think, oh, I've made a million dollars. I've got a beautiful mansion, et cetera, et cetera. I did it. No. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. but Jesus had a self that was unadulterated. He was talking about a different self there. What I'm even saying in reading Paul earlier is that that's the kind of ego that is completely obedient to doing God's will which is what we really should be seeking and discerning and understanding that is the greatest happiness is this union in doing God's will. It may not be what the world wants or likes us to do, and we may be crucified for it, but if that happens, then we should know that God is with us there. It's a forward step from the self to being centered in God. How Jesus could say, I and the Father are one, It was not himself that he was exalting. It was that he had sacrificed himself into having God be the center. So his sense of being was in God. All of us are called into it. I was just reminded again as as he's speaking about, I'm reminded of Paul saying, I am not alive, rather Christ is alive in me. Christ is living in me. Instead of that self, that craving, that sinful self, Christ, that living spirit, is directing him, and he is in union with that. And that's what we should all be seeking and trying hard for. What we're talking about in that passage I read about going into unity, this is the unity of like-minded people, like-minded Christians, who have come to this consciousness that they need to rise up to that full stature of Christ, to that fullness that completeness in themselves that Paul expressed when he said, I am no longer living, I am no longer alive. Oh, and he's actually using the word I in Greek, ego, ego, which you don't need to use ordinarily when you use a verb. It's understood by the verb ending. If you use it, you're emphasizing the I I is no longer alive. The ego is no longer alive. Rather, the anointed one is alive in me. That's a distinction he's making there that is not clear in English translations, but you can see it in the original Greek. This is something that people, I think, don't want to do. They'd rather go to a watered-down kind of Christianity that doesn't have this going all the way, that Christ says we must, that Paul says we must. I wanted to share that I do believe that family is very important. Whether you call it tribe or not, or community, But especially in Latin America and in many other countries, USA, no, Canada, I don't know. But family is not so important. It's only the individual, the person. It's very, very selfish perspective. 
my sister, she has been living there for many years and she has changed so much. Living in the United States? Mm -hmm. I have seen that among Mexicans here. Where I live in San Mateo, about 25% of the population is Hispanic, Latino. So there's a huge population here. I can see the family there as being much stronger a unit than among Americans. I don't know about Canadians, sorry. Maybe David could say something, but there is definitely a difference there. Sorry, I wanted to relate it to the idea of spirituality because community is important in the sense of having love, compassion, tolerance, acceptance, respect, support, and trying to see that of God in everybody. And then you have this concept from Africa, Ubuntu. I don't know if you have heard, but more or less definition is that I am because you are. That's why I was saying that Americans, North Americans, U.S. citizens have this extreme individualism that they're not even aware of. They just live in it and they don't realize that the rest of the world is very different than what we have here. We don't see that or we don't know that unless somehow we become aware of it because of certain circumstances. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you mentioned the thought on community. There's a couple of thoughts going through my mind. I think as, as I listen to all this, uh, I've always felt like an American and grew up in the United States, but I don't belong here because my heart's always been in academia. I was a university professor and all. It's been a terribly lonely experience for me outside of the university environment. But I've tried to put my finger on it. But part of it is I was surrounded by international individuals from around the world. And I think they offered something in the sense of families, in the sense of community, in a sense of support to one another that I have not found among my American friends. The other thing, more from a scholarly approach, I've heard scholars refer to the Old Testament God as a very tribal God. In other words, when they went into the promised land, they wiped out everything. In other words, the Jew, the the, problem, the people that were God's chosen people, wherever they went, they just destroyed their surrounding cultures and all. So the Old Testament was very rooted in a tribal concept of God and a tribal God, where basically it was all about them and the tribal was very different than community because in that sense, they, they destroyed what was around them. And community, in the other sense, which we see more in the, in the New Testament, I think is focused on community and fellowship, then that's where we see everything that they mentioned, you know, in terms of support, uh, in terms of the compassion, in terms of sharing our faith journeys and all, but it's also done with a love towards other people. So I think the tribal concept is very different from the community concept, but I think community is so critical in our faith journey, in our lives, and I'm so happy and appreciative what you shared with us tonight. I think that may be why so many of my friends are from other countries. I, I treasure what they have in the way they approach life, and I, I appreciate what they shared tonight. I think those of you who have grown up in, in conservative Quakerism, I know I've seen this since I've been associating with conservative friends, that there's much more of these familial relationships than I've seen anywhere else in any other Christian denomination. There's something much more the sense of family in the religion than elsewhere among liberal friends or evangelical friends or Catholics or whoever. There is a kind of family understanding of religion as well as having family as such.
I think your points, each person has really brought forth really good points. I think the culture really educates people to the way they are. But what causes that, it depends on which particular organizations or institutions are dominant within that culture. And what America has is it's market-based. It's money and it's competition. And that is the God. The other God, okay, is power. Yes. Okay. And that's like politics. Okay. And that is also competitive. Let me just say, stop you for one second. Money and power are the same because money is power. Okay. But they come in different ways because these institutions control them. It's a matter of institutional control. So before in this society, when we were a godly people, there was a third institution and it was religion. And in that institution, it's we. And that's where morality comes from. Our morality has come from religion. And well, now it depends on the religion. I'm saying that because I was surprised last night. I just came across a YouTube video of Vladimir Putin being interviewed by two British Financial Times reporters in the Kremlin for an hour and a half. But there was a short segment I heard of him talking about how the Christian values have disappeared in so many of the more capitalistic countries. I was quite surprised to hear him talk about this in this way, but he actually was. It's much more of this individual kind of change that you see that has replaced the true Christian values. I was just like, wow, what an interesting thing to hear him say. Anyway, it's about time for us now to stop. Perhaps we'll be finishing up with the Fundamental Belief Series soon. Okay, I think we will stop there. Thank you all. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote in our introduction is from the 12th chapter of Romans, verses 1 and 2, Good News Translation. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at oymconservative at gmail.com.